academic or private research is sometimes seen only as the way to discover the next big thing, the next revolution, the next quantum leap in what we can do. And indeed, it can be. But to get public coverage and funding, be it from your own organisation, government or private sources, it is often best achieved by proclaiming how great your breakthrough is and how profitable it will be. But a discovery is only the first step. To get good policy and implementation, we need to have clarity of thought, a realistic perspective of what a new direction might lead to and an understanding of the barriers and the concept of behaviour change. Now, Professor Graham Curry from Monash University is the is the Director of Monash Infrastructure, Chair of Public Transport and Professor in Transport Engineering. Not long ago, he wrote a paper, Lies, Damn Lies, Autonomous Vehicles, Shared Mobility and Urban Transport Futures. It's a pleasure to have him on the line to chat about this now. Professor Curry, thank you very much for your time. Uh, good to hear, good to talk to you. Professor, you did this paper, didn't you? And you've done a lot of research, not just on trying to discover the, the next big thing, but to implement things. Is it really critical that we get a lot more work done on what does it look like when it's working? Oh, I think so, because a lot of new developments are very speculative. Hmm. And although uh, they get a lot of media coverage, I rather think they're tinged with too much hype. Now, hype is uh, selling things that aren't real. And you might think, oh, does that really happen? Well, there are many, many failures of new technology said to be the solution to all our, our wars. There are many examples of failures like, you know, monorails haven't really revolutionized cities. There was the famous Sinclair C5 motorcycle, which never really anybody used, but at the time was seen to be successful. And a really great technology, which hasn't really taken off, is uh, ma uh, maglevs. We've only got two in the entire world in, you know, 40-odd years since they were developed. There's a danger that when we're looking to the future, we're, we're seeking solutions that aren't really possible, and we should really be investing in the ones that are. I think we've been having flying cars for the last 50 years. Yeah, that's a great example, helicopters. You know, there are 2,100 helicopters in the entire country of Australia. If you were to take them into one city and luckily try to deploy them to ca carry two people an hour, that would really be two trains worth. And that is no solution to the urban transport problem that our mega cities are going to be facing when they're the size of uh, London and Paris. So, uh, you know, those, those solutions sound interesting, but they're not really solutions to the critical problems we have. Uh, they're sort of fluff, really, at the edge, and we need, we need solutions that are going to work. Your city of Melbourne has just been nominated as one of the Uber sites for its flying taxi. If it were incredibly successful for what it is, it will be a mere drop in the ocean along the lines of what you've been talking about. That's my point. And we just need a realistic uh, exploration of this issue. And I think there's a lot of fluff, fantasy, and not enough reality. And really, uh, we all have an obligation, I think, as transport planners to help society solve its problems. And this overemphasis of technology is, not, is getting in the way. We become very supply side rather than demand side, don't we? We think the answer is a flying car. Now, what's the question? It's not as if we really begin to understand 
what it really means. You, for example, take on the autonomous vehicles, which everyone says it'll be fantastic because you can then share vehicles. You have severe doubt as to whether that is what will unfold. The claim is that they're going to solve traffic congestion, that they're going to be safer, that, in fact, a lot of US people have said that they're going to take over from public transport, which is very old and you know, decaying. Well, you can take each one of these apart at the moment because there's no facts behind them. Extremely unlikely these vehicles will ever reduce traffic congestion because if they were to run in, in platoons very closely together at high speed in cities, no one will ever build across a street. At the moment, there's far more crashes per kilometer with these, these vehicles and deaths than there is with uh, human-driven cars. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm, I think if you could have them operating in a special environment, then maybe they would work. But I can't see how we would transform our cities so there is a currently a special environment for them, those vehicles everywhere. I think they're just not really thought out. Here's another truth. There's probably only a thousand of these vehicles, maybe 2,000 in the entire planet. So we would be lucky to have 100,000 trips a day, less than that. But currently, 40% of all the trains, passenger trains, public transport trains in Asia are, have no driver. There is hundreds of millions of passengers using public transport without any drivers in them. So the whole field is led by public transport. Public transport solves traffic congestion. Even Australia has got its first driverless train. You know, we've substantially reduced costs, very efficient. Uh, it seems to me like the solution is to use public transport with driverless technologies not to in increase the use of single occupancy vehicle in congested cities. So um, I just think there's, there's questions to ask, and that's what I'm, I'm raising with my, um, my papers. I did interview Ford's Futurist some years ago, and she was very honest and very straightforward, still is, Cheryl Connolly. She was realistic in one sense, but was there was still that element, I think, within the car industry that it was going to be the brave new world, when in fact it could just congest up the whole system. And while you or I might be able to work in an autonomous car, not everyone can, you're right, though, isn't it, that really autonomy would work best in corridors where we have not just single vehicles, but rather higher capacities, which is really just a, a much more efficient public transport system. Yeah, and that, that works today. You know, the Northern Line in London, Victoria Line in London, the Docklands Light Railway, Vancouver Skytrain, Sydney Northwest Transit Way, Singapore's Transit, Shanghai's public transport system. Now, these are operating today. They tell us something about where we can have automation. That's in tunnels or platforms with screen doors to manage passenger interaction with extremely high level of care. And those environments are safe. And they're certainly not streets. Streets in our cities where millions of people walk every day and dogs and, you know, cross roads and you know, older people cross the road. We just literally could not get a street to work like that at volume. So I just think these are not real yet. And you raised a really great issue before about looking for the technical solution. You see, transport planning has been dominated by transport engineering. Hmm. And they are, these, these guys are very successful, you know, airlines, planes, trains, cars, fantastic technologies. But there's a techno-rationalist thinking that goes with engineering, which unfortunately emphasizes the technology and the infrastructure 
and forgets the people. And I would even point out that the best technologies that really work today actually have included people. You know, your, your smartphones. These sorts of things have been beautifully designed to be workable for people. And that's why they're successful. And that will be true of our transport systems. So I'm just really pointing out that they're immature, these ideas now, and they're not focused on the solutions we need for cities. As an engineer myself, I must say that we have been tended to be trained or believe in the principle of solving a solution. The real issue, though, is what solutions are we given to solve? And too often it has been to move vehicles rather than to understand people. Yes, I do agree. Although I would like to be progressive about what engineering is. And I would say, you know, the engineering education you had when you were a graduate has really changed a lot now. And what excellence in engineering is, is it's integrating human science, human consideration, psychology into engineering, and the discipline is improving. And so I think in many ways, the professionals will be considering these issues. And in fact, in fact, largely because success in the industry will be successful because they do this sort of thing. I accept your point of indicating that I did graduate some time ago. I was very fortunate, though. <laughs> the university I went to did a new course at that stage where I had to choose quite a number of general study subjects. Not enormous in the scheme of things, but at least far more expansive than just doing mathematical-based work. And I think that ebbs and flows. Is a part of the problem in transport. It's a bit like the political environment, isn't it? A good slogan will win you great coverage, yet it doesn't go to the depth of the problem. And we've had almost fundamentalism slogans about public transport or roads, roads as congestion busters, that we don't go beyond that to really understand people's needs. I'm glad you've mentioned this because this is a real truth of our careers today, trying to make change in this country. We are always seeking technical solutions that are the best, but in practice, the ones that get implemented are the ones that are politically acceptable. And really, that whole issue of local politics, state and federal politics is something that engineers don't really spend any time on that they really should we need solutions that are going to work within the political system to get achievable strategies. So I would say the future for engineering is to start thinking about pragmatic ways of exploring engineering within the political system. And that will give us more success with the types of things we want to achieve for cities. One of the papers you recently wrote, I think you began by saying that the editors of this learned journal had given you the right to speak in a more common tone rather than the very dry academic jargon that often happens. Was that a relief, a joy, in fact, a necessity? Yes, uh, I do agree. Our job as professionals in the industry is to make things better. You do that by communicating. Unfortunately, academia and, you know, engineering to an extent, there are plenty of technical disciplines like modeling, operations research, where there's far too many formulas that no one understands. In the end, our job, I think, is to explain clearly to an often busy person like the CEO, for example, they often don't want to get involved in the details, the public and politicians, you know, those guys are very busy, not technical experts. There's a real role for us all to 
tone down our work and come to the key points to better communicate what we do so that we can achieve change. And uh, and understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Communication's always a two-way thing. Hmm. You speak in one of your papers about transit fusion. What do you mean by that? Okay. This was a reaction. You see, what's been happening in transport futures and in our language generally is we're creating new words. There's always new words every year. And in mobility, there's been the words shared mobility. There's been other words uh, uh, like new mobility. Why can't we create new words which are important for real solutions rather than solutions that don't you know, really solve our problems? And I, I wanted to create one for public transport. And transit fusion is my idea. It really is bringing together something that's already happening. For example, Australia has almost pioneered how we can use buses to be like trains. The Northeast Auburn Busway in Adelaide is the fastest urban transit way in Australia. It's faster than the rail networks in all the cities. Maybe not Perth, because the buses run at very high speeds and they have high stop spacing, in long, long distances between stops. So it's average operating speed, about 80 kilometers an hour. Mm. In the Adelaide North Southeast Busway, the Brisbane Southeast Busway, over 300 buses an hour in the peak down that busway, uh, and particularly getting over the information gap of where the timetables are and so forth. I think a transit fusion, a great example, is automation. It's the public transport industry that's led passenger transport automation on land passenger transport in the planet. It's not driverless cars. The public transport industry is far, far ahead of all those manufacturers because we carry hundreds of millions of people every day. Here's another example. We've got new modes like car sharing, car clubs, bike sharing. These modes are increasingly being used for public transport. In German cities, it's often the public transport operator who runs car sharing because their market really relies on having people that don't have a car. And one of the key features of people that don't have a car is that they every now and then need one. So why doesn't the public transport authority help them? And often, you know, they need to get there and they can use the train to get there. So the future is kind of not quite the way people are seeing it. And I think it's time for us to look at alternatives that are more attractive, that solve our urban problems. And there's no reason why technology can't be part of that. I wrote a paper once that reflected on a previous prime minister who said he was a transport agnostic. My title was PM says he's a transport agnostic, alleluia, in the sense that he wasn't caught up with any one mode of transport, but he was trying to focus on efficiency and effectiveness. You mentioned many good examples about buses. Now, the O-Bahn in Adelaide would be a perfect example for an autonomous bus. It was expensive to build a structure that driver can take his hands off the wheel, but now we could do that far more efficiently. I do agree that these segregated rights of way could well work this way, and it's getting towards an environment where you can get automation to work. I might add that environment is a long way from streets where people would like to have our driverless cars work. You would need platform doors. You'd need to exclude passengers from walking across the rights of way. This happens in Adelaide. Also, the busway currently uses streets in the centre of the city, um, you know, Curry Street and so forth. And these would not be acceptable for driverless buses running at speed. Mm. We do have driverless buses on roads at the moment. But frankly, they're very small capacity vehicles going extremely slowly. 
And in fact, there's a danger all driverless cars would only ever be able to do this safely in streets with people, which is why you'd probably have to segregate the whole of the system to get this to work with driverless buses or you know, driverless trains. Do you think that might be a distinction, though, between long haul and short haul? The great thing that we need, and we're, so we're spending a lot of money on, say, parking around railway stations, and there was an article in the conversation about, well, that's a very expensive option when other things may happen in the future. A small vehicle travelling slowly around a local area with a very known route and some traffic engineering to help it might be another way in which we bring in this technology? I think so, but in a very specific way, it will be successful, and that is in suburban low-density areas, which is very much the Australian environment, providing access to transit nodes, stations, busway stations, and so forth, where there's good services. Almost certainly not the rest of Australian cities where all the congestion is, because vehicles running at small capacity in these congested environments slowly just will make everything worse. So driverless cars, as they're being envisaged as the alternative to the private car travel, just can't happen. It just doesn't seem very realistic. Whereas this idea of feeders, first, last mile access way to more efficient mass transit at volume and speed frequency is very much what I would call transit fusion, actually. And cities like Singapore have really turned a corner with automation. They've been trialing driverless cars, but they begin to realize why. Why? Because these things really could provide an alternative for better access to their fantastic autonomous trains. And maybe this is a picture for the future for all cities. We often think of autonomous vehicles as being great for people with disabilities, and I agree that would be the case. Yet it's not going to help them if the system is swamped by those not with disabilities might well be able to swamp the local road system. And so we lose out in both cases. Yes, it's a great point. In fact... The point really is not just people with disabilities, people who haven't got a driving license, older people who don't drive. Here's an interesting conundrum. Anybody above the age of five up to 18 who can't drive, are we going to have five-year-olds getting in these cars on their own? Would you do that? It raises big issues about what's reasonable, and it also raises issues about sharing of the vehicle. Would you have your five-year-old share an autonomous car with strangers? You see, I think... People will not share them. At the moment in Australia, our occupancy of our cars has been falling. There's been a disastrous fall over the last two decades. Cars in Melbourne have got 1.06 people per car in the peak. And I think these driverless vehicles may actually have only one person in them. And here's another problem. They can reposition on their own so they can be empty for some of the time. So do we need cars with occupancies below one? Do we need more vehicles on the street with nobody in them in congested cities? You see how this is, just doesn't seem to be playing out? So I do think there'll be a, a growth in travel if we had full automation. In fact, we've done a research project on it where we think it may be between 10 and 20% additional travel in cities will occur. Now, I can't see why congested megacities like we have and we're getting, why they need 20% more trips to solve congestion. I think they're going to increase congestion by having 20% more trips. Now, I think there's a good reason to do more trips for those people that they're suppressed. Great but it's not a solution for congestion. Modern technology, unfortunately, then allows he who pays wins. A colleague once said to me, 
a CEO will be prepared to pay $100 to get to lunch on time, but if you or I have a heart attack, the nurse won't be able to get to the emergency ward because she can't afford it. And this may well happen with flying vehicles. It is very much one for those who can pay the most. Now, you're chairing a a workshop at the Threadbow Conference in Singapore where competition is being looked at. We have to go beyond competition other than if we have a good service, everyone can use it to a very specific way that only those who can pay the most may end up using it. Is that a problem? Well, it's been a huge problem in our history. It's been dominant in the last century. He who pays gets the best service. It's a fundamental part of our economy and our ethos of what we believe in in capitalism. However, I think we need to manage that to have successful megacities. I think London works well because they recognize the problem of giving so much space to very rich people who've got Rolls Royces, which is a really simplified summary of why the congestion charging scheme made a lot of sense in London. It's not as quite clear cut in Australia, but we have a responsibility to give solutions for everybody, not for the small few. And I do think Australia does this fundamentally. Each of our cities is spending billions of dollars to support a public transport system to make sure that everybody can have access. So I'm not overly worried about that. I do worry that ideas like Elon Musk's Hyperloop, how could that possibly work with you know very small numbers being being able to travel in a very small tunnel, unless it's extremely rich people. And those tunnels could limit access for mass transit systems. We, we have to prioritize this. I mean, I don't mind wealthier people getting higher quality by paying for it. It's just that we need solutions for everybody first, if you like, as a priority. But one of the problems of ride-hailing services such as Uber and Lyft is that the government sees them as almost a freebie, that someone's implementing something that won't continually cost them money. Yet it will in many ways because of the cost to the community. It's very important in a policy sense to understand what the real consequences and impact will be of those sorts of services. Would you agree? Yes, I I do think it's the, this is more example of an idea being pitched and then operated, which hasn't been fully thought out. Well, for a start, we, we wonder about the finances of these systems and how permanent they are. They are already making lots of losses. Who pays for them? Well, the user pays, but a high share of the costs has gone into the driver who must maintain their own vehicles. Mind you, the, these systems are extremely user-friendly and you can't but marvel at that side of it and how that's leveraged technology. But I have a bigger concern over them. And it comes again with these words we're using, these new words for new mobility. There's this word called ride-sharing and Uber is very much part of the ride-sharing philosophy. I do, and the reason I don't like it is because it's a lie. The average occupancy of an Uber in traffic is 0.66 passengers per vehicle. It's actually 1.6, but includes the driver. And that implies that 34% of the time, the vehicles are, are, t- are traveling around, getting to places where they can pick people up or they're, they're looking for business. Now, congested cities don't need empty cars filling the road up trying to pick people up. And this is why Manhattan, central parts of many cities have been saying, why do we need these things? They're empty. They're just adding to congestion. 
they're providing a, a good service to passengers, a cheap, cheaper service for passengers. But what about everybody else? Is it encouraging at the margin people from in buses and efficient modes like buses and trains to travel in cars, making it you know more congested? So I think there's a public interest concern about this. And it, it really annoys me that they're called ride sharing when the occupancy of the vehicle is below one. And uh, it also annoys me that public transport vehicles like trains and buses, trains can carry 2,000 people each vehicle, right? But they're not called ride sharing, whereas a public bike with one person on it is called ride sharing. It doesn't sound like sharing to me. And I think public transport's sharing because of the thousands of people on them. We get these notions that if it's on a bike, it must be great. Yet the whole idea of hiring short-term bikes has fallen over because people can just leave them anywhere in the street. We need to have a system that says I don't pollute the local street and that perhaps we should give some parking spaces over to where you park them and you have to park them there, not just dumping them on any footpath. Yeah. It's those sorts of things that will trip it up rather than the notion that a push bike must be better than a car in every instance. Yes, I do agree. However, I am sympathetic to a lot of the views of the, the bike community, you know, you can marvel at the European cities in the Netherlands, Copenhagen, with their wonderful bike culture. The big truth that is not often understood is that the Netherlands decided to have bikes. They didn't have it in history. In the 1960s and 70s, they decided to change their policy to be pro-bike. And they went and did it. And it was successful. We are a long way from that. But we could make those decisions if we wanted to. And, you know, the idea of walking and cycling for local travel and using public transport for longer distance travel is a way of making cities more livable, I think. I think we'll always have the car of some kind, even in central areas, but we need to start managing it, which is where being more diagnostic is not good anymore. I do feel that the world is changing. All the major cities have recognized that they need to manage the car more than anything. And that this is happening in Australia as we Europeanize central areas steadily over time. I guess part of the problem with the bike perception has been that there have been some who are so fundamentalist as to be a lack of empathy with others around them, as is the case with you and I zooming down a, a quiet residential street in the car. The same thing really should apply. It is getting back to not just the mode but the actual purpose and interaction it means in a community sense yes i, I do agree our research here at monash has shown many behavioral issues with particularly male younger cyclists which don't en enamor themselves with the wider community and can be a safety issue in itself mm. but i take a longer term view of these things because change even in our lives hasn't happened quickly. It really takes decades. And I look at central Melbourne now and what it was 30 years ago, and there's been a, a revolution in cycling. There's so much more space available. It is really feasible. And we're along, we've come a long way. And we can go further, but it's hard to implement. There are many path, what I call path dependencies. You know, we've been building roads for, for a long, long time. We're used to it. We're still doing it. And I think we still will. But we are doing it less than we were and we'll eventually stop and start looking for alternatives which really solve our problems. And we shouldn't be spending so much time on alternatives that don't solve our problems like autonomous cars and vehicles with nobody in them. 
Professor Curry, I appreciate your time and your thoughts and your 30 years of experience, not only in research, but also in policy as well. That's a great commitment, and I've enjoyed that greatly. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.